Hi, my name is Dave Franklin. I'm actually a, a neuropsychologist by trade. So I've been at UCI for the last 15 years. So I've been on faculty for the last five. Um, I have many capacities. I've been working with Dr. McGuire on research for the last 15 years. We work, we, uh, I co-direct a stuttering center with him for the last five years. And um, became involved with concussion after I received my um, degree, uh, my doctorate degree, and started looking into neuropsych. I first got a concussion actually by getting a call from someone in the neurology department, uh, Dr. Betsy Parker, who is a neuropsychologist that is a consultant for the Anaheim Ducks. And she needed someone to back her up. And I said, of course, I jumped at the opportunity. Nothing like seeing professional athletes and, you know, getting to know them a little bit better and the intricacies of professional sports. And became very interested in concussions. Started doing some research in it. Got involved with some of the societies that are involved in concussions. And um, started backing up the Anaheim Ducks. And I'll explain some of the measures we use for them throughout this, um, throughout this battery. But NHL instituted some changes because the players were not doing so well after receiving multiple hits to the head. So they wanted a better way of trending it as well as care of the players, which has really started to, um, to domino in other uh, arenas, NFL being especially uh, prudent in this, in this um, field, and, uh, and most likely into other disciplines as well. Uh, LA Galaxy is now going to be working um, in instituting some of the co concussion programs that we've instituted here at UCI and following our patterns as well. So that's how it all gets started. It starts at the top, then it starts dwindle, dwindling down. So um, uh, two years ago, we formed a concussion program here at UCI, a comprehensive sports concussion program, looking at athletes throughout all of Orange County. My colleague, uh, Dr. David Cruz, who's boarded in his family uh, sports position, who's absolutely fantastic to him to be a good friend of mine. Um, uh, we both kind of came together with Drs. Hada and Pere and formed a program. That's going to be most likely changing next month because Dr. Cruz is going to be leaving our institution and moving on. So, um, but any which way, we're going to go ahead and, um, and I'm going to continue in some facet. Can you so this is, yeah, can we see if we can click on the video? So, um, this is a video that I became aware of when one of my patients came in and said, hey, my son kind of looked like this after, after receiving a, a hit to the head, and hopefully it'll come on up. There we go. Look at the prone arm. He is out. Okay. 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 Thanks, BC. We don't think we can go ahead and pull on the. So, one of, one of my patient's fathers brought in and said, hey, look, my son kind of did something similar to this playing high school. His arm was in a prone position, and now he's having a lot of difficulties. Needless to say, he didn't go back into playing sport. Um, thereafter and playing football. Java didn't either after this. In fact, he got drafted by the Lions and, recent, and released. Um, so what is a concussion? First of all, the ED is extremely important. You guys are basic second line. Okay? So whatever happens on the field, they usually get sent to the ED. Okay? So, and that's why outreach is extremely important in this, in this arena because concussions are very tricky. All right? And I'll explain, some, of course, some reasons why. Um, concussions may be caused either by a direct blow to the head, face, neck, or elsewhere on the body with an impulsive force transmitted to the head. It doesn't have to be linear. In fact, one of the worst concussions are ones that are rotational. Okay? 
Concussions typically result in a functional disturbance with rapid onset or short-lived impairment on neurological function that resolves spontaneously. We're hoping. We're finding out that they don't usually respond spontaneously for multiple reasons, depending on um, how old the child is or adolescent is or adult is, how many previous concussions they've had, and so on and so forth. Okay. There we go. Okay. Um, concussion overview. As we know, and as, as you guys are well, well versed in with the contra coup, um, concussions, first of all, and what's important for education for the family is that they don't always have to have a loss of consciousness. Everyone assumes that the concussion, which is also used within the neuro rehab realm as being a mild traumatic brain injury, a concussion is a mild tra traumatic brain injury. It is an injury to the brain. Um, you do not have to have a loss of consciousness to suffer a mild traumatic brain injury or a concussion. Um, you may not even realize that you've suffered one, which is actually common, especially in athletics. Um, you'll see kids come in and they just go right back on the field. Um, there is a great player for, and I forgot his name, for the Chargers. Did you guys recently hear about that? The player had a seizure on the plane. So, and it was a linebacker, and I can't remember his name for some reason. Very good athlete. Um, was uh, stumbling back as he was coming out of the huddle. You see him start moving backwards. Right in front of the referee. Referee didn't pull him out of the game. Coaches, staff didn't pull him out of the game. He had a concussion. They left him in the game. On the flight home back to their, um, to their city, that, back to San Diego, he suffered a grand mal seizure on the plane. So, and, um, and of course, has not been back this year. Um, so they don't, sometimes they don't realize it. Some people, some other even professionals in the arena don't even realize that a concussion has occurred. Um, they are mostly mild, and people usually recover within the first two to three weeks after recovery. If they don't recover within the first month, we become, we become very concerned about something called post-concussive syndrome. Okay. Chris Thielman? Yes. Thank you, Shram. Appreciate that. Know. That's <laughs> it. You just got it right on. Chris Thielman, that's right. I think he's a pro bowler, too, if I remember correctly. So, and I'm sure Dr. Lafapur will go ahead and take a look at that as well. <laughs> Um, there's usually some type of uh, temporary interf interference with um, cognitive functioning, uh, whether it's kind of altered mental status, difficulties with attention concentration. We usually see some type, not usually, but there is a chance of developing a, a post-traumatic amnesia or a retrograde amnesia with these types of um, insults to the brain. Okay. So, so what? Uh, uh huh. Of course, wrong. Yeah. Did, did, do they have any guidelines? The one you're mentioning in particular. Mm -hmm. That the case you're mentioning, that they should have pulled them out? Absolutely. So that is now the guidelines for the NFL. In fact, what's happening on the sidelines of the NFL is that they're having an un unbiased trainer that's going to be on the field of the sidelines for the NFL that's not either associated with the NFL or with the sports teams to make sure that the players are pulled off the, the field. What happened at the first part of um, last year's, well, I guess of this continuing season, is that a player from the Indianapolis had such a bad concussion that the tr athletic trainer tried to pull him off the field and almost pounded the athletic trainer, the player that suffered the concussion because he was so upset that he was being pulled out of the, out of the, out of the game. So, you know, they get very, there's, there's an agitated component to it after concussion that are some, that's organic, but there's also, you know, I need to get paid, I need to be within the, the field, this is my living, so on and so forth. And it's a pretty, it can become very heated. Even athletics, we also... Uh, work with the Servite team. When they won last year and won CIF, you know, it was hard to pull some of those players out because there's always, not always, but there's a lot of competing issues. Um, grants, scholarships, 
things of that nature. If you're playing for a CIF team that's probably going to win the that's going to win the CIF championship, there's issues with that. So there's multiple um, psychosocial issues that surround this as well. Okay. Um, so what happens to the brain? Um, there, in concussive injury, there's a shear stress, which can happen, especially what we see with moderate to, to severe traumatic brain injuries. We sometimes see it mild um, traumatic brain injuries. Um, what's nice about um, some of the new imaging, like DTI, diffuse tensor imaging, is that they can actually look at the axons and see if the axons are stretching and shearing. You see, can see some diffuse ax axonal injury um, to people who suffer mild traumatic brain injuries, especially if there's a whiplash. There's that rotational pull that pulls around the midbrain, and that becomes, can become pretty serious. And then, of course, you have the contra-coup and coup, um, the linear force back and forwards. What's interesting, and there's been multiple studies looking at soccer players with heading, right? So because soccer injuries is probably our number two sport here that we get in as far as most of the concussions that come to see us. Um, and they found that, interesting enough, intentional heading doesn't induce any type of mild traumatic brain injury. But if the player was hit off to the side of the head unexpectedly, you have more of a chance of developing a concussion. What happens, what, what do we think happens during uh, a, a mild traumatic brain injury or concussion? Um, we believe there's a neurochemical cascade. Um, there's disruption of the neuronal membranes, axonal stretching, which releases potassium and excitatory neurotransmitters such as glutamate, okay, that are released after the episode or during the episode. The release of potassium and excitatory neurotransmitters, um, it's called a neurotransmitter storm. Uh, the decreases GABA, and of course GABA we know is involved with things like mood, anxiety, and things of that nature. Um, and loss of forebrain cholinergic neurons, learning and memory deficits can, can result in things of that nature. Has anyone heard of second impact syndrome? Okay. So what happens with the second impact syndrome, for those that aren't aware of it, is that what, what was happening and why concussion became to become in the forefront, especially in the high school arena, is that there was a couple deaths on the field. And what they found is that patients who had, or students or athletes who had concussions, aren't taken out of the games, they get back on the field, and they suffer another severe concussion, and they actually pass away or die from it. And what we call second impact syndrome. Doesn't happen very much. We still have a lot to learn in that arena. But we believe that the neurochemical cascade that happens during traumatic hit is accelerated significantly more after a second hit to the brain. Okay? Statistics, concussion epidemiology. 1.6 to 3.8 million sports-related concussions per year in the U.S. 10% okay. of athletes suffer concussions each season. 8.9% okay. of all injuries to high school athletes are concussion-related. Okay, so you're looking almost close to 10%. 50% of high school players report concussion symptoms. Girls are at more risk in soccer and basketball and take longer to recover. We're still trying to figure out why that is. Who here thinks that What's, as far as um, recovery time, who is more prone to recover earlier, adolescents or adults? What's your guys' guess? Okay. That's what you would think, right? Actually, the opposite is true. Adults recover quicker. We always come, into, we kind of come to this terminology, this, this uh, uh, idea that because we're younger, we seem to recoup faster. What we think is happening is that individuals who are children and adolescents, since we're still developing neurons and the neural, neuronal pathways are being especially um, active during adolescence in the, in the frontal part of the brain, 
these patients actually take longer to recuperate than, ad, than adults who've always kind of, who've already by the time they're late 20s, early 30s, made those connections to the frontal part of the brain and the prefrontal cortex. So in adolescents, they actually take longer to recuperate. Yeah, Dr. Lafford. question. So 10% suffer um, concussion. So I'm guessing that they surveyed all of them and they said, do you have any symptoms? And 50% said yes. So it, it's there's a huge discrepancy. So there's, it's a little bit underdiagnosed. It's much it's underdiagnosed, exactly. It's getting better, but it's much underdiagnosed. Um, and I'll explain the reasons why in just a minute. Um, how many of you guys, and you guys do a lot, CT MRIs on concussion, right? How many come out positive? Zero, right? I had one this year that's, that suffered from a subdural he, uh, hematoma. And that's rare. And that was two weeks after the incident when the patient became dizzy and just almost collapsed. And that's when they did a, a repeat MRI and found there to be bleeding. MRIs will not pick it up. Okay? 80 to 90% of MRIs are negative. Okay? Which is difficult for the family to understand. Um, because when they come into my office or Dr. Cruz's office, they say, oh, imaging looks good. You know, he should be fine. You go ahead and write a letter and have him go back. And it's kind of this false idea that everything's okay on imaging, therefore everything must be okay on the brain, therefore he can go back and play. Okay? So, but imaging most likely will not pick it up. DTI is going to be getting better and picking up some of those issues, but again, it's not going to be as sensitive as we would like in diagnosing concussions. Yes? When do you recommend MRIs? Usually, I mean... It depends what kind of symptomatology the patient has. Usually when they get in the ED, I've heard instances of nausea and vomiting and things of that nature. Dr. Cruz would suggest going ahead and doing an MRI just to make sure that there's no other type of bleeding. Um, it doesn't have to be done at any The main reason for that question is it's considerably easier for us. Absolutely. CT. Yes, to get, to get an MRI. Right. So is there any reason why, if... Yeah, on your no question, thing. is there any reason why we ought to order an MRI versus a CT scan? That, not unless you would, in a normal case, if someone would come up to you and say, hey, look, I've had a head injury, so on and so forth, I'm not nauseous, I'm not vomiting, anything of that nature, then I would think, think that a normal CT would be just fine. When there's, aggravated, when, there's aggravated, when there's aggravated issues, nausea, vomiting, things of that nature, then an MRI may be indicated. Loss of balance, dizziness, things that, like you would... It would be normal protocol if someone else was coming into the ED who suffered from being hit by a shelf or something of that nature. Crazier things have happened that you would do the same thing as you would do with sports-related with sports type of concussions. Dr. Langdorf? Yeah, so the problem is that for acute blood, MRI is less sensitive than acute CT. So our primary responsibility is to rule out bleeding because right. it's something that somebody can do something about. Whether or not the CT shows that it's not only doesn't, either does the MRI. They're both negative in the subtle neurocognitive problems. So from an emergency physician's responsibility, we need to rule out blood. And the right. CT is the test of choice, fortunately. Right. If the CT is negative and they still have neurocognitive symptoms, that's a different question. Then maybe the MRI would be indicated, but maybe not in the ED at that point. Right. right. I guess MRI, that's what I was just about. Mm -hmm. so the MRI is really for the bleed, nothing else. To make the, sure that the, it's no, the CT is for the bleed. The CT is for the bleed. To do the MRI is to find out if there it was a bleed. It depends on how long it's been. If in the first five to ten days, the CT is more sensitive. After that, the MRI, depending on which of the, the which of the, they have to get a T2, T2 flare, flare, right? And that's supposed to be the most sensitive for blood in an MRI, but it right. still doesn't approach, you know, 95, 98 percent sensitivity in the acute case phase for blood on CT. So, 
you know, two weeks later, three weeks later, yeah, I get the MRI. It may or may not show blood, but at that point, they're not going to do much about it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, between, th between 10 days and three weeks, the CT blood becomes isodense with the surrounding um, brain parenchyma, and it's, it's the same gray Hounsfield units. And so you could conceivably miss a small subdural between 10 days and three weeks on a CT, but usually that's not our problem. At that point, if the CT were negative, then you could consider an MRI in that period, but it's usually not an emergency anymore. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if there is, I mean, if there is a small subdural that small that you can't see it at two to three weeks, I mean, how clinically relevant is that anyway? Is right. It Right. And usually by that time, I usually see them for a neuropsych assessment. If I'm seeing real significant laterality issues or real significant cognitive impairments, I may suggest referring back to a neurologist or, or someone in that capacity and say, hey, look, can we get further imaging to find out what's possibly leading to the differences in cognitive functioning? Okay. Does that answer? Dr. Langdorf, of course, answer your question. Okay, great. So, CT still first. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Solid concussion data did not yet exist for pre-high school populations, and this is becoming a, a major issue. Um, some of the batteries that we use, especially some of the computerized assessments, aren't normed for, um, for, young, for younger children, um, usually less than the age of 13. What's happened is that as equipment's gotten better, there's this kind of invincibility issue we're dealing with, right? These kids are getting stronger, they're getting quicker, they're getting faster, and um, due to diet, due to sometimes enhancements they use and things of that nature. So when they hit, they hit hard. And they believe that the equipment that's protecting them will keep them safe. Um, and unfortunately, we're finding that that doesn't necessarily happen. But what happens is that kids who are in um, you know, these tot leagues and things of that nature with football players and soccer players, they're, they're playing at a pretty considerable force and can hit each other really hard. Unfortunately, we don't. some of the computerized assessments that we used aren't normed in that population. Concussion symptoms, and these are type of things that, you know, in part of the uh, emergency department, that you may want to go ahead and, and just get an idea of, okay, if, if you hadn't seen them within 24 hours, they're coming in a week later, are you having any of these difficulties? Because these patients will come in a week later and say, hey, look, I'm having difficulties in this arena. I don't know where else to turn to, and they sometimes will end up in the emergency department. Attention and concentration problems, trouble remembering, being mentally foggy, getting lost or easily confused. Speed of thinking slow down. Processing speed. They're not thinking as efficiently nor as quickly as they did prior to the concussion. Um, taking a longer time to react. Reaction times also dropped and mood changes. Um, personality and mood changes is a great cornerstone for concussions. Okay? Especially left frontal region of the brain. We deal with depression, apathy, anhedonia, and things of that nature. And those are the type of mood symptoms that you really want to take a look at, especially after a person who suffered a concussion. Um, as far as physical symptoms, it can range from headaches down to changing in sleeping patterns. It's not unusual for the sleep-wake cycle to be disturbed in individuals who suffer from mild traumatic brain injury or concussions. It's something that needs to be worked up. As far as medicating, that's the other issue. So if someone has headaches, do we give them ibuprofen right away or Tylenol? We try not to because I, we don't want to mask some of the symptoms, and that's what tends to happen sometimes. The primary care physicians out in the community will say, oh, you have a headache without getting a concussion history. Treat it, and it masks the symptoms, and the patient still, and the kid or adult still having trouble um, uh, getting uh, academic, academically or occupationally being as strong or optimal level that they were beforehand, and you're masking some of the symptoms. So, and that's some of the issues, too, with, uh, with some of the physical symptomatology of uh, mild traumatic brain injuries. Of course, we deal with some of the nausea, vomiting, uh, photosensitivity, 
is one of the cornerstones is also of a mild traumatic brain injury or um, loss of consciousness. Concussion children may be more difficult for children to, of course, articulate their symptoms, especially to mom or dad, but what you really do see is behavior changes. Okay? More isolative, um, not hanging out as much, um, kind of in their bedroom, sleep-wake cycles are disturbed, having trouble concentrating, they maybe look restless or fidgety, um, loss of interest in favorite toys. Okay, the anhedonic type of, uh, type of um, issue that comes along with, with individuals suffering from concussion. Irritability in children, good luck. <laughs> kind of a cornerstone. It's part of their predisposition. But if there's an increase in irritability or things of that nature, is it worse than a norm? And that's what you really want to get a measure of is what was your child like prior? Did he have mood changes prior to the concussion? This may be you know, issues with a mood disturbance that, wasn't, has, nothing to do, that has nothing related to the nothing that was not related to the concussion. Loss of learned scrolls such as toilet training, we don't usually see that until moderate type of TBIs, or balance problems or unsteady gait, which are pretty easy for the parents to take a look at. So how do we assess cognition? Um, anybody keep up with some of the cog cog uh, concussion literature in the NFL? Do you know what's kind of being done right now? So there's something called the impact that we've been using, that I first started using with the NHL three years ago. It's been around, I think, for the last seven or eight years, developed by a neuropsychologist. And what it is, is a computerized assessment that's normed, sometimes to sports, but for, at an academic facility, it's normed from 13 all the way up to adults. And what it does, it looks at memory, both verbal and visual. It looks at attention and concentration. It looks at speed of processing, and it looks at reaction time in a 25-minute time span. They sit. They sit in the office, it's online, and they go ahead and do it. For the NHL, we had you know, 30 players sitting in a room and going through this prior to them starting the season. Okay? NFL instituted the same thing. Soccer teams are now instituting the same things. At least we have a baseline. Okay? Let's face it, some of our NFL players are not the smartest individuals on the planet, right? They're not going to score off the charts on these computerized assessments. So is it due to he repeated head injuries, or is it due to, you know, them just not having a very high IQ. Um, so this gives us a baseline, gives us an idea of, okay, are, what kind of changes are we seeing? What's nice about this instrument is that you can use it serially. So it uses alternate forms. So after the concussion, what we did with the NHL, is after the, the player stopped having some of the physical symptomatology of the concussion, says, hey, I'm fine, I'm ready to go back in, they get another assessment with this, with a couple paper pencil assessments, and get an idea of, okay, really, are we seeing any changes? Um, so these are the type of things that we use for, uh, for, um, for looking at baseline assessments. We did this for Servite. We did this for a few other high schools, too, that UCI did, in which we baselined 300 athletes prior to them starting the season so we can get an idea of trending. What Dr. Cruz would do is do them serially and see if they start getting better. Okay, we'll start getting a, a, a return back to play. And this is the whole purpose of this, getting the players back to play appropriately and safely so that we don't have to develop that concussion on top of concussion on top of concussion. Okay? Um, it's, if, we're start, if we do see issues um, that continue to linger and we get more into post-concussive syndrome, six weeks, eight weeks later, we'll do a full, I'll do a full neuropsych eval to take a look, okay, what are the real insults, what's, what's the issues here, so on and so forth, and then provide accommodations occupationally or academically for the students so that they can perform at their optimum while dealing with something like this. Okay. Yeah. So will this test be available at primary care physician? It can, absolutely. So what they do is that for academia, they give the 
people that developed this gave um, uh, cost savings to to uh, to people in academia, and they'll get like a thousand baseline tests, and then they'll get four hundred post baseline tests that they can go ahead and do and run serially. So yeah, so you can buy them in bulk, and that's what we've done here at UCI. So we can test our residents at baseline. Absolutely, mark them upside the head and see if they test just as well. well Absolutely. So <laughs> yep. This is supposed to be confidential. <laughs> so um, let me tell you, with hockey players, goalies, when they did the, vi the visual memory is not easy on this. It's figures and designs, and you're supposed to recognize them about 20, 25 minutes later. The goalies on the Anaheim Ducks was just scored off the chart. I mean, he was in the 99th percentile. It was just amazing. Their visual, spatial, visual, perceptual well, field. he was a hockey player smart enough not to have not, Exactly. That had all the paths on. Exactly. That had the water bottle fall on him, and that's about it. Exactly. Um, as far as the neuropsych um, domain, as I mentioned before, these are type of, um, of domains we take a look at. The ones that we usually see in mild traumatic brain injury are attention and concentrations usually interrupted in some facet. And that's what we usually see from a lot of the adolescents that come in. It's just, I'm just having trouble sustaining my attention. Um, executive functioning skills, um, things, organization and planning, decision making, those become poorer, poorer. What you can see is impulse control issues. So if, even from mild traumatic brain injuries, the kids might be doing things that are kind of uncharacteristic of what they were doing beforehand. You might see an increase in impulsivity. Working memory, which is also a measure of the prefrontal cortex, is also an issue, which is the ability of the brain to divide and manipulate information. So if I ask a student, um, what's eight plus nine, the brain does that mental gymnastics, and then the student gives a result, so on and so forth. As you can imagine, the complexity goes up, but that's usually interfered in some way with a, a mild traumatic brain injury. And of course, short-term memory. Um, whether it's learning, retrieval, or encoding is difficult some, as well. It could be any three of those involved in uh, mild traumatic brain injury. Um, we see that in our concussion patients with repetitive questioning. Yes. I had a guy who said, call me, a motorcycle accident, bonked his head, little beanie helmet, says, call my wife, gets off the phone with his wife, hands his phone back to the <laughs> paramedic, and then says, hey, have you notified my wife? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You can really kind of see this as you would see with a dementia patient. Okay, and we're not to that extent, although there's a lot of research looking into repetitive concussions and dementia. In fact, um, head injuries is a um, risk factor for dementia, but you see that repetitive questioning, short-term memory loss, problems with attention and concentration. You see that cortical, subcortical issues that we see with mild traumatic brain injury, and they're starting to make links. Um, we see the, uh, the uh, chronic tra traumatic encephalopathy and things like that that boxers go through, um, where they look where they are demented. They're suffering from an encephalopathy. So they are making that link into repetitive hits to the NFL. Now, remember, the NFL isn't doing this, I don't think, as the goodness of their heart. They're doing this because they're getting a lot of insurance claims back on the back end of these players now that have suffered multiple injuries and now are using the insurance claims to say, hey, I'm not functioning the way I am or they're developing dementias. So and that's, I think, what's kind of spurred this on as, as well. Uh, frontal region of the brain is extremely important. Um, as we know, multiple uh, pathways from the midbrain all the way back from the occipital regions uh, connect to the frontal region. Um, frontal region is very sensitive for initiation, problem-solving, judgment, inhibition of behavior, as I mentioned beforehand. Um, personality or emotions are what we see phenotypically. Okay? This is what's observed um, and can be observed um, after questioning. Um, speaking. 
tip of the tongue syndrome. I can't think of that word, okay? And that sometimes happens with, with what we see after mild traumatic brain injuries. Um, it's a measure of the Broca's area, which is the left frontal. And yes, we do have it anyway, but it can get worse in concussions. <laughs> so this is something called the Stroop. And this is something that I use as a neuropsychologist. Anybody heard of the Stroop effect or know of it? Okay, so it's, the, it's the, the ability of the orbital frontal, dorsal, lateral, prefrontal cortex to inhibit information. <laughs> so it's the front part of the brain that says stop me or don't stop me. Um, it's a measure of inhibition. And what we'll see is like uh, they'll give colors. There's, they read a list of, color, of words for 45 seconds, red, blue, green, red, blue, green, red, blue, green. And then colors, red, blue, green, red, blue, green, that they're supposed to name. And then what they're given is a color with a different word. And they're supposed to inhibit the word and tell me the color. So even though that screams green, they're supposed to tell me the color yellow. Okay? Or screaming the word red, they give me the color green. It's, a, it's a, the ability of the brain to inhibit that information. It's a measure of impulse control and impulsivity. Okay? It's a fun task. It's a great, that's a great one. Kids come out of there going, wow, that was hard. Mm -hmm. The problem with this is that some of this stuff is online. So when I deal with... Um, with uh, you know, forensic cases or I deal with someone that's trying to sue the person because they stepped on a crack in front of a building, they can look at this and say, okay, I'll try and feign this, okay, or things of that nature. And this is where some of the issues with neuropsych testing, you have to be kind of prudent to what the alternative, ulterior motive might be as well. And if you're being colorblind, you're host. Yeah, yeah colorblind. <laughs> What's interesting though, even with colorblind, I gave this to my father who's very colorblind, he was able to actually do it. So there's, you do it, but you take that into consideration. Processing speed is going to be a little bit slower. Um, this is something else that we do. It's called trails A and B. This is the B part. Trails A is the ability of the patient to go from one to, eight, one to two, two to three, three to four, just drawing a line, connecting the dots. And it's a measure of attention and concentration. What you see with ADHD kids is that they'll go from one number and then skip another number. Or they'll take or their processing speed will be slower than normal control, so it'll take them a lot longer to do with this. This added another component where it alternates patterns. One A, two B, three C. It's the front, ability of the front part of the brain to cognitively switch, okay? Both efficiently and accurately. And again, with people who have frontal deficits, they'll sometimes miss a switching pattern, or they'll take longer to go ahead and do, okay? So that effect on the athlete. Um, so how do we get the athlete back to play? And that's some of our concerns when dealing with things of this nature. Um, normal protocol now, which was instituted by the CIF, and I think it's called Bylaw 313, which you'll see in the, in, the, um, in the end of the slides, is that CIF rules now mandate that the player be, uh, be not returned to play, that the player has to be evaluated on the sideline. If there's deemed a concussion, the player cannot return back to play at all during that game. The player then has to go to a physician to go ahead and, um, and have a return back to letter uh, prescription or memo or letter saying, hey, it's okay, it's safe to go back. The problem with this is that he can go to anyone. He can go to a family member who's a physician. He can go to you know, anybody down the street that can go ahead and write a letter and saying, okay, he's okay to return back to play. Again, thinking about those external psychosocial um, stressors that kind of mitigate some of the issues with the actual physical symptoms. Um, so that is the guidelines. What happens now is that high schools, not all of them have athletic trainers on the, on the sidelines. So who makes that determination? The referees on the, on the field or the coaches, which is what you really don't want to have have happen. So um, that's, that's been an issue. Yes? And I don't know if you said that, 
just for the residents, that's not our job either as nope. emergency physicians. And so I've had plenty of parents ask me, like, they need a return to Dang. support, and that's not our job. Exactly. And I don't suggest anybody from this team go ahead and put themselves in that position. Okay, because it is very soon after the fact. You're not really getting a good scope of the symptoms that might have results from a head injury. But absolutely, you will get that, okay? because they just want their kids to be back onto the team. Um, as far as athlete taken to the hospital or doctor immediately, um, this is a suggestion. New onset of vomiting, new onset of headaches, becomes restless, dizzy, drowsy, has had a convulsion, of course, acting strangely, or visual problems or slurred speech. Um, this can happen, you know, it doesn't even have to happen with sports. I saw a child um, that Dr. Bill Loudon, as uh, a neurosurgeon, um, saw that was referred to me that um, had, uh, uh, was playing Foursquare on the playground, um, got pushed, hit the back of the occipital region of the, of the skull, and then hit it so hard that he came back up and hit the tetherball pole sitting in front of him. So... Kids sitting there crying for a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The kids sitting there crying a little bit. Um, teacher at recess says, you okay? Kid goes, yeah, I'm fine. They send him back to class. Mother picks him up in the afternoon. He comes crying to her, you know, saying, hey, I don't feel well, da 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 He ends up vomiting in the, in the car and ends up having a bleed. So that Dr. Loudon went ahead and, and worked up. Um, these aren't easy cases because... This kid had, has had trouble now going back to school and accommodating to what's been like for his academics. And he also had, a, uh, we found out, a clinic his, clinical history of ADHD, which made things even worse. Needless to say, they put, Dr. Loudon put him on stimulants. He's doing much better, and he's performing above what we would normally see and doing quite well. And Only playing, after rest. And playing varsity foursquare. <laughs> Only after rest. And that is what you'll see on this as well. Only after rest. Cornerstone of concussion management, this is what, outside of the ED, this is what we deal with when trying to get the players back to return to play or to their academics. Um, physical and cognitive rest is by far the most important, okay? And this is what's the hardest to tell the players or people in the, in, you know, who have you know, steady occupations and things like that are professionals. Um, I try to explain it to my patients is, you know, if someone has a torn MCL or ACL, you're going to sit that leg out. And the brain being an organ, of course, you want to go ahead and rest that organ as much as possible. That means TV is a minimum, usually less than a half an hour. Video games for kids, less than a half an hour a day. Um, these kids are sometimes pulled out of school. If they are able to somewhat handle school okay, they're maybe given a shortened schedule. They're given accommodations, longer test taking time, longer homework taking time, things of that nature. And of course, not returning back to field until symptoms start resolving. Um, sometimes I'll have students out of school for two or three weeks after a concussion just to keep them at rest. Because what happens is that you're sacrificing that small period of time for a period of time that could be much longer, especially if they're dealing with a post-concussion syndrome. Brain rest is extremely important, Dr. Langdorf. So is there data that shows that that patients with brain rest recover ultimately faster? Absolutely. Yes, there has. Um, University of Pittsburgh has done a lot of research in that, in that arena looking at brain rest post-mild traumatic brain injury and look at return of play and return to their prior functioning quicker than they were if they went back and stressed the brain. And stress just in terms of cognitive function. Exactly. Because it's hard to see the connection between watching TV and resting well, your brain. Well, and you know what, and Dr. Loudon during a, during a neurology ground rounds put me on the spot where he said, well, what does video games have to do with, you know, 
stressing the brain, but when you think about it, when you're looking at video games, these are usually first player video games. You're looking at multiple stimuli coming in at the same time, pushing buttons. Even though you don't look, I mean, the kid could be glued. ADHD kids are great at video games. I mean, they, they have multiple stimuli coming from every different direction, noise and visual. So, um, but what's happening to the brain is the brain's using a lot of different areas to go ahead and catch up what's happening with the, what's happening to the video game. So when you think about video games are extreme, it requires a lot of cognitive efficiencies and making sure that you know, the kids get to where they want to get to in that video game. So the stress is pretty significant. TV, yeah, I mean, TV may be a different issue, but again, you're looking at visual. Usually it's something that's multiple things are going on. These kids aren't usually sitting down and watching the Nature Channel. You know, they're watching other things. <laughs> so God only knows what now, but yeah, so it can, it can range. Again, we wait for symptom resolution. Usually it's physical symptoms start to start resolving first. Um, one of the most predominant symptoms that we start seeing is a continuation of headaches. And that is by far the hardest to treat with mild traumatic brain injuries. It's very difficult to treat headaches with mild traumatic brain injuries because they do continue to, to linger. Um, and then there's a graded program exertion. Um, so if we get the player, football player, player will maybe start doing some running a little bit, no sprints, but we'll jog or run with the team. Next day or two or three days, if, no, if the symptoms not return, they'll do sprints. Couple days, then they'll start doing um, uh, passes and things of that nature, and then um, practice hitting and things if the symptoms don't come back. And the coaches and athletic trainers are known to go ahead and watch for that. And then you see a medical clearance to return back to play. Um, difficulty, as I mentioned before, some of the cognitive issues. Um, multitasking is extremely difficult for these kids who suffer from mild traumatic brain injury, doing more than one thing at once, which is already difficult for, for adolescents, but can be significantly hindered when suffering from a concussion or loss of consciousness. Mood of behavior. Depression is probably one of the great cornerstones that, that I see. Um, I just recently saw uh, a college athlete who um, was playing football up to his junior year, I was playing high school football up to junior year, suffered concussion. Dad thought, you know what, let's move over to rugby since football, <laughs> since he's having concussions in football. <laughs> yeah, great, yeah, good move. Needless to say, I had a concussion while playing rugby. The parents finally pulled him out of sport. I saw, Dr. Cruz saw this patient probably about a year and a half before I did, before they finally came in for the neuropsych eval because he's having problems over at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Bright kid. Um, he comes in, and after sitting in with him for three hours during this evaluation, he finally confides in me and goes, you know, Dr. Frank, I've been having thoughts of not wanting to live and things of that nature. Well, when did these start happening? Well, it started happening after my last concussion. He's had multiple concussions, about four or five that have been documented, most likely more so before that, and really having some suicidal thoughts. Um, and this is the first time it was expressed to anyone because he didn't want to worry his mom and dad. Okay? So and this is what can sometimes happen when dealing with someone who suffers from uh, multiple concussions. Okay? Um, you see this increase in irritability as well, um, decrease in socialization, which he was doing. Needless to say, his attention and concentration, he was severely impaired, less than first percentiles on sustaining his attention and concentration. Significant cognitive deficits. What was interesting is that the counseling office already got a wind of this before and already put him on accommodations before I saw him. So they were right up there and saying, hey, he's been having some difficulties, so, which was good, and that's what we want to see. Um, erratic behavior and impulsivity is also a possibility. I mean, I don't know how often I hear is, oh, you know what, from the family, oh, he got a bump on the head, right? He's going to be fine. We can go ahead and put him back in, so on and so forth. And you'll see that. 
they think of, of um, concussions as you have to have a loss of consciousness for it to be severe. And I expect my, my son and daughter to be back in the game. And this could be four or five concussions later. And it's really trying to get the education out there that you know, the more we have, the more prone we are to developing post-concussive syndrome. Um, it can affect the functionality of academics, occupation, and social interactions. Risks of incidence of concussion. This is some of the research that Guskowitz um, uh, did. Found that players who've had three plus previous concussions are three and a half times more susceptible to developing another concussion than a player with no prior concussions. Okay. So we do believe that there's a concussion threshold. So as you develop one concussion, you're more predisposition to developing another concussion. If you have more concussions, again, that threshold decreases as you've had more concussions. Um, players with one previous concussion have one and a half times risk of developing further concussions. Okay. Lee et al., as far as some of the pharmacological treatments for post-concussive syndrome. So post-concussive syndrome usually happens or occurs a, a month after the concussion, and it can occur within, it can resolve within two to three months. It can be continuous. And the adults or athletes, something that they have to deal with for sometimes for the rest of their lives because it's just they're not fully optimal in their ability to process information. Um, there's been a study looking at methylphenidate, uh, sertraline, Zoloft, and placebo um, on neuropsychiatric uh, sequelae in patients with TBI. It was a four-week double-blind study, not very long. Needless to say, methylphenidate is more beneficial for mood and cognition. No, side of, no significant effect with Zoloft. However, this was only a four-week study. So usually with antidepressants, you don't see some type of resolution with symptoms until six to eight weeks after, after initiating treatment, especially with Zoloft. So um, kind of weak, but still, they're starting to look at some of the pharmacological treatments. Another um, pharmacological treatment that they're going to be studying at University of Pitt is uh, amantadine for people who suffered from, um, from post-concussive syndrome or um, concussions. Future direction sports. There's something um, that the University of Virginia is using called the Head Impact Telemetry System, or the HIT system. Uh, you got to love the acronyms. Uh, linear Head Acceleration da Data. Um, there is uh, six accelerators that are, that are actually put onto the helmets, um, and it measures, the, right now they have 71,000 head impact. And does, the problem is that it doesn't, um, it doesn't measure rotational uh, injuries or rotational impacts. So if the, if the athlete was um, spun around or whiplash, it won't measure the, the directional pull of that. Um, this is what it looks like. You can see in the inside foam pad, the area there. And um, overall, it's going to hopefully get an idea of a predictive value of suffering from concussion, what's the threshold of possibly suffering concussion. Um, and again, one of the issues is that it doesn't pick up the rotational acceleration. Um, um, and with this type of data, they're expecting that the linear effects are going to be stronger than the rotational effects because it just doesn't pick up the rotational effects. Uh -huh. So, you know, that's also true, and I don't know if you know, uh, if you've heard much about it with NHTSA, so the National Highway mm -hmm. Traffic Safety Administration does a lot of testing for motorcycles. Mm -hmm. and they do helmets and stuff like that, but they only do linear. Linear and not rotational, right? they don't right. have rotational testing yeah. of helmets. Right. So they, in particular, test helmets, and they want to make sure that the helmets are safe. But, you know, we always have to keep in, in, in mind that they're mainly testing the helmets Right. straight back and forth, and hopefully their manufacturer is more cognizant, which uh, hopefully that they're looking at other ways of protecting that rotational rather than just, you know, front and back. Exactly, because it is really the rotational findings that we find to be one of the ones that are most detrimental as far as some of the insults that we see after being hit. 
Um, predicting long terms, this is Dave Dewerson, um, suffer from, um, uh, from uh, all dementia following multiple head injuries. He was diagnosed with a tra chronic tra traumatic encephalopathy. Um, this is a person who, um, after his football years, he was in his um, late 40s, um, shot himself with a shotgun. Before shotting himself with a shotgun, he wrote a note to his family saying, I haven't been right since I've played football. Please don't my, donate my brain for research. So they, looked, so they actually did that. And they found that there were, there were lesions and um, tau proteins throughout the brain and suffering from most likely what's called the tra chronic traumatic um, encephalopathy, which you know, is not un unusual, unfortunately, in boxers. We'll see it in boxers. Um, a little bit more unusual what we see with football players, however. Um, and significant atrophy, atrophy of the cerebral and temporal lobes. Basically looking like a dement uh, Alzheimer's dementia case. Um, 3,500, uh, Guskowitz did a, a survey on 3,500 retired NFL football players. 37% um, increase in dementias compared to age match controls. That's a significant increase. 61% had at least one concussion. 24% had at least three concussions. This is going to be much higher, I can guarantee you, than 64%. Okay. Even 24% at least three concussions. You're probably looking at higher. Um, those with at least one concussion, 18% had continuing cognitive difficulties difficulties, which is a really pretty astounding number. Okay? And children under four at the time of the moderate to severe CBI have poorer social, cognitive, and physical outcomes compared to older preschoolers, and that's less than four. So you can really see that impact on early childhood adolescents with people who suffer from traumatic brain injuries. And this is the CIF legal issues about removing people from, their, um, from play until they receive written clearance um, from a health. This states from a health care provider. There'd be chiropractors that go ahead and return back players back to play, okay, and things of that nature. And those are some of the. And for people who aren't very well versed in concussions, you know, it could be very detrimental to the player. And so there was no way to get that from more than a healthcare provider to somebody with. They're working on that. They're working on that right now. They're working on the bylaws to actually increase the that they have some some type of knowledge or education in concussions. And I don't know how they're going to try and implement that, but they're looking at that right now. Requirement for licensure pretty soon. Yeah, probably. Yes. Do we need to refer these uh, children to sport medicine specialists for clearance, or their pediatrician or? Um, I, the way the healthcare management system is set up, a lot of the kids that we see are unfortunately, and well, are fortunately or unfortunately in the HMOs, so they have to go through their primary care physicians before they go ahead and get into the gatekeepers to get them in to see a sports physician. Um, I like to have sports physicians clear them to be honest with you, because these are ones that are most, the problem is there's only about four boarded sports physicians um, in the Orange County region. One, Dr. Cruz, Dr. Basil, who's in Huntington Beach, Dr. Couture's, who's in Anaheim, and uh, Dr. Halloran, who works for the Kaiser system. Um, so there aren't many of them out there, but they're the ones the most versed, but mostly the primary care physicians and pediatricians are the ones that, that write the notes. However, they've become more weary of this and have asked for specialization um, specialties to come in and help with the return back to play procedures. Okay. Are neurologists at all getting involved in this? Neurologists hate it. Do they? They hate no concussions. Way. They really don't like them. A lot of them don't like them. Because these patients, when they get to the neurologist, are suffering from continuing pain of one way or the other, and it requires a lot of care on our parts. I mean, what you'll see is that they'll try and get them back to play, and then the kids kind of revert back. And then you try and, you know, this is constant. Um, 
uh, struggle between trying to get the kid black to play safely and at the same time trying to appease the parents. So you're having multiple systems involved, familial systems, you have the kids trying to get back to play, and it requires a lot of care in trying to get this. And, you know, and they're dealing with the headaches, and that's why we usually refer them for neurologists. And headaches is just, you know, Dr. Cable would go ahead and give Elevil. So that was like a normal mainstay that he would go ahead and use and try and treat it. But it requires a lot of care to the family members and to the children. So it, it's, a lot, it's a lot to deal with. So, yeah, so neurologists really don't. And I have Dr. Alcori, Lama Alcori, who's been fantastic, and she helps out in, in that respect. Dr. Perey and Dr. Hada used to go ahead and do that, but they kind of pulled themselves out. Okay. Has there been any data or, or thoughts to look at NFL players and people in professional rugby leagues in Australia or elsewhere and looking at concussions? And you know, their NFL players are heavily padded, they have helmets. Right. Uh, I imagine, I, and I don't know, does any of that work? Why not just run around like rugby Like rugby players. Um, <laughs> right, because, you know, there's two schools of thought. You know, as the equipment's getting better, supposedly better, I don't want to say better, as, as new equipments come out, the invincibility really starts to skyrocket. And with rugby, you don't usually see players coming at each other full force trying to, you know, really knock the, their heads off. You don't see the forearm to the heads like you'll see like Dealman do and things of that nature. Um, there has been some studies looking at soccer players because soccer players are really exposed and found a significant incidence of concussions within it and that's why the, um, the US soccer leagues have now started using concussion programs here in the states and I don't know what's happening over in England but England's even worse. I mean you know you not only have to worry about the soccer players you worry about the fans. <laughs> getting involved. So, I mean, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it, a whole other avenue. But I don't know of any research outside of the U.S. A lot of it seems to be driven within the U.S. right now. Okay. So I know in, in motocross, mm. they have huge investments in some of the padding and, and the attached to the shoulder pads and the back yep. pads, and none of that has been proven to actually help reduce injuries. And that's true. It's and that's a multi-million dollar industry. And same thing with football helmets and pads and things of that nature. As football helmets, as advancements made in football helmets, they claim, well, we'll protect your head. No, not necessarily. And there's been some studies looking at that, that, that the newer helmets don't necessarily protect the child as well as the older helmets have. And there's been some studies looking at that. Um, the other sport is MMA. You know, these guys beating themselves to a pulp inside of a cage. I mean, you know, that's the other issue. But the MMA is not going to come out and say, I want to do concussion evals because they're not, they're not going to be ready for that. They're not going to have anyone that's going to be fighting. So, I mean, that's going to be some of the issues. But that's another one, too, that's, that's a real, real high risk. Any other questions? Yes? For some of the more chronic kiddos who've been playing all high school, and a kid in peas just the other day, mom brings them in and he just doesn't care. Ever since he was 15 and started playing football, he's 17 now. He just doesn't care about school anymore. He started hanging out with the wrong crowd. He's smoking weed, and he's Normal. rude. Yeah, like, exactly. So he's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And I mean, I realized there was probably some of the cognitive testing going on. Mm -hmm. But how do you tease that? Out? <laughs> so I thought it was just kind of ridiculous. Exactly, and that's one of the hardest things is that you start at the same time that you see start seeing blows to the head, you start seeing normal behavior change. Well or abnormal behavioral changes just to, on the person's disposition. Um, that's why I use cognitive testing to really find out, am I seeing true organicity in this, or are we dealing more with the personality mood component to it? And that's where cognitive testing does kind of help in help teasing those things out. 
usually I do get kids like that. And then I, what I usually use, well, how long after the injury did you start seeing these changes? How many times have you know, has he ever had documented concussion history? So I'll start asking questions more of history and timelines. That helps me. Is there any, another great, to, uh, when I'm finding out some of my other colleagues, Dave, Dave Lechuga is a neuropsychologist down in South County, have found out that um, chronic head hits to the head or even one concussion or two concussions in adolescence, if there's a family history of bipolar disorder, depression, it may unmask that. And we're finding that out where I've, I've been seeing kids who have really become severely depressed after one concussion, after with no loss of consciousness and doing okay in school, mood just completely dropped. Then I asked, well, is there family history? Well, yeah, my mom and dad both suffer from depression. One's been hospitalized, one hasn't. I, we had that with a, a bipolar child that came in. Dad was severely bipolar, been hospitalized multiple times. Kid had two concussions and showing some pretty irritability, impulsivity, things of that nature. And now they're treating with a mood stabilizer, doing fantastic. But, you know, that's the other issue is the family history of, of unmasking some of these issues that are genetically predispositioned. Okay. Dr. Lafapur. And there's no requirement for them keeping track of these at the school level, like, or reporting these to anyone? Nope. I'm just wondering if, for example, what you were asking, has there been this or that? Right. If you went to the, you know, school, would the coach have to report it at least to the school, you know? To the school nurse? Most likely the school nurse wouldn't even know that these, these things happen. It skips them and maybe goes as far down as the athletic trainer. So there's really, even though the school, Dr. Lerner, who's now working for the Orange County Department of Education, who is a pediatrician here at UCI, um, has been de developing like an, an EMR type of uh, system for the school system. They're going to try and hopefully start tracking these, but right now there is real no good tracking system besides the parents. Okay. Hope it was helpful and kind of lean a little bit to emergency medicine, but I know you guys deal with this on a second line basis after the, what we see on the fields. But um, I'm always available. So I have a pager that's on me 24 hours. I have my office. I can see patients usually within 48 hours if necessary. Dr. Cruz will also be available. He's going to be maintained here as a volunteer faculty and just be right down the road. So he won't be very far. And that's what I'll be referring a lot of my patients to as a first line. And then if they need neurocycle, see them afterwards. But any which way, please feel free to get in touch with one of us if you have a child that comes in the ED and they need you know, some, maybe some special attention farther down the road that you feel might benefit from being further evaluated. So we're, we're, we're here, and this is one of the reasons why Dr. Height, myself, and Dr. Cruz, and some of the other guys decided to go ahead and get this program off the ground. Okay? Thank you. Right. So, right. So, as far as telling what to expect, um, it's not unusual within 48 hours. 48 hours to develop some type of headaches. Okay. Um, they may seem a little foggy. All right. Um, they may some have some cognitive complaints like attention concentration or some little bit of memory. School might be a little bit more difficult. Okay. Is one way you can bring it up to the. These are the type of things to watch out for your child. If they have nausea or vomiting, come back in immediately. Okay. Um, make sure they be followed up by a primary care physician or sports physician within tw within 48 hours, and try and hold off a little bit on the on the um, on the uh, uh, pain realm because we don't again the masking issue of a possible concussions also of interest. 
Sleep has always been an issue. Well, do you go ahead and keep the player? I don't know how the ED handles that. Um, we get that often is, oh, no, make sure you keep them up, or no, it's okay for them to sleep. Dr. Cruz, Dr. Couturis feels if they're sleeping, it's okay for them to sleep. That's, that's all right. Um, but again, if they're, if they're sleeping too much or things like that, and just make sure you check up on them. You know, just ask them, how are you doing? Any change in mood? You know, um, things like that. And have them rest. That's one of the most, you know, I don't want your child going back on and doing their normal activities. Just rest for a couple of days and see how he does. Okay. Thank you. I hope that helps. All right. Thank you. You got it.